This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. In our last lecture, we looked at the justice of God and the punishment of sin. And we saw that God's justice is that perfection of God's being according to which he is in harmony with himself as the perfect and only standard. And we saw that we, because we are sinners, are not in harmony with that standard, and therefore we are subject to God's punishment. And we learned also that Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God by his death on the cross. And this is now our tenth lecture on back to basics, basic Christian doctrine. There is, however, more to God than mere inflexible justice. God is good. And that's our subject this evening. God is good. But he's never good at the expense of his justice. He is just and good. Or he is good and just. And by God's goodness, we mean two things. First, God's goodness is his ethical goodness his ethical perfection, or his holiness. In that sense, God is good. But that's not our subject or focus this evening. And second, God's goodness is his benevolence, or his beneficence. That is, his goodness toward the creature. And that's our subject and our focus this evening. His goodness toward his people in Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us on almost every page that God is good. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Or Psalm 113, or 103 rather, verse 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Or Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. And notice there three things about God's goodness. First, God is good. Emphasis on the word is. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Psalm 103 verse 11. So great is his mercy. Psalm 103 verse 17. The mercy of the Lord 
is from everlasting to everlasting. And that might seem rather obvious, is, but it points to this great truth. God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving because that is his very being or nature. God is good, merciful, gracious, and loving in himself without the creature. God does not need the creature in order for him to be good, merciful, gracious, and loving. Because God, remember, is absolutely independent. He does not require the creature for anything. The creature simply exists because of God's good pleasure. But God could do without the creature, and he would still be the ever-blessed and only good and perfect God. And that brings us to the Trinity again. God is good to himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And God is merciful to himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And God is gracious to himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And God loves himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is wonderful because it means this, that the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the love that God displays to his people in Jesus Christ is the same goodness, the same mercy, the same love, the same grace which he enjoys within his own being. And so God, in saving his people, shares his goodness with his creatures. So God is good. Second, God's goodness is great. Psalm 103 verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy. Psalm 103 verse 8, The Lord is plenteous or abundant, or rich in mercy. We're talking here about the goodness of God. And that goodness is not little. It's not insignificant. God is not slightly good. God is great or infinite in his goodness. And the displays of God's goodness are great. So great that they fill us with wonder, praise, and worship. So that Psalm 103 begins this way. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So God is good, God's goodness is great, and third, God's goodness is everlasting. 
And this, of course, ties into the being of God also. Because God is good, there never was a time when he began to be good, and there never was a time before which he was not good. Because God is good, there never will be a time in the future when his goodness shall come to an end. God will continue to be good when this present creation has been destroyed by fire and all the wicked have been burned up. God will be good into the endless ages of eternity. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Or listen to Psalm 136, verse 1. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth for ever. So God is good. God's goodness is great, God's goodness is everlasting, and fourth, God's goodness is particular. Particular. God is not good to all his creatures. God does not show mercy or love or grace to all his creatures, and especially not to all human beings without exception. Psalm 103 describes those who are the objects of his goodness. Verse 11, So great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Verse 13, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And to fear God does not mean to be terrified of him, as the wicked are terrified of him when they stand before him on the last day. To fear God in Scripture means to reverence him, to be in awe of him, and to love and those who fear God and who love God and who worship God, they are the objects of God's goodness. Not because they fear him. That's not the condition for becoming the object of God's goodness. That is the description of those who are in this life and in the life to come the objects of God's great Everlasting, particular goodness. And here's Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. He's not good to the wicked. He's good to those who love him. Now God's goodness is so wonderful in Scripture that different words or terms are required to describe it. There are three main words we're going to look at briefly this evening. 
I've mentioned them already, and they're mentioned in Psalm 103. His mercy, his love, and his grace. When God shows goodness, he shows mercy, he shows love, and he shows grace to the objects of his goodness. And let's explain those three words in turn briefly this evening. First of all, what is mercy? Now, the common notion of mercy among many Christians is that God does not give someone that which he deserves, i.e., God does not punish someone according to what he deserves. But that's not the main idea or the central or the Basic notion of mercy. Mercy is God's tender affection. That's mercy. And mercy is especially God's tender affection toward those who are weak or miserable or wretched. That's how we experience mercy in this world. For example, a parent has mercy upon his children because the parent is strong and the child is weak and the parent has mercy upon his children, especially when his children are sick or in some form of misery. Then the parent especially shows mercy to the children. Or in the New Testament, Christ shows mercy to the beggar, the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Or Christ shows mercy to the leper. Or to some other person in acute distress. That's mercy. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. And as the God of mercy, God sees that his children are in distress, his heart is moved to compassion, and he stretches forth his mighty arm to deliver them from distress or misery. And the greatest of all miseries, is sin. And so the greatest of all mercies is to forgive and to deliver from sin. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And so mercy delivers from the deepest misery which is sin and death, and brings into the greatest blessedness, which is fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. Second, there's love. We all think we know what love is. And the world thinks it knows what love is, but love in Scripture is God's 
delighting in the object of his affection. And so when God loves someone, he treasures that someone as precious and dear to himself. When God loves someone, he seeks the good of that person. Love does no harm to the beloved. When God loves someone, he seeks and establishes a bond with the object of his love. When God therefore sets his love upon someone, he will not rest until that person is his, is united to him in love. Now the Old Testament has a word for love, which expresses a very beautiful idea. You've probably heard this before. It is to breathe after or to pant after another. So when God loves his people, he breathes after them in love. Here's Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. So God set his love upon the Israelites, and in his love he delivered them from the Egyptians, and he made them his very own people, in whom he delighted. He breathed after them. And because his love is effectual, it is after all the love of God, he actually brings them to himself. He actually makes them his own. He brings them into his loving embrace so that they experience his love and love him in return. And the third word is grace. And again, we have this idea commonly in the evangelical word world about grace, the grace is God giving you something that you do not deserve. That's grace. And that's partly true, but that's not the main idea or the central or root idea of grace. The main idea of grace in the Bible is beauty. And it comes to mean a beautiful attitude of favor. When you see grace in the Bible, don't think unmerited favor, first of all, but think favor. That God is having a favorable attitude or disposition toward someone. Now, of course, when that grace or favor comes toward the creature, and especially now the sinner, that is going to be undeserved or unmerited favor. But grace in itself is not unmerited favor. And so there's nothing in the creature that can attract God. There's nothing in the creature that can cause 
God to have favor upon the creature. The creature cannot do anything to put God in his debt so that God owes the creature something. You can't make God owe favor or grace to you. And here's Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. God shines in his favor upon his people. God blesses his people out of that favor. God's face is upon his people or toward his people. God's face is against the wicked, but God's face is toward his people. That is grace. And you see how God is good within himself. God is merciful to himself. Which means that God is tenderly affected toward himself in the very depth of his being and desires himself to be the most blessed God. And because God is merciful in himself, he is the most blessed God. There is no misery in God. It's not possible for God to be miserable because he is the merciful God. And God is love. God delights in himself. God breathes after himself, the Father after the Son, and the Son after the Father in the Holy Spirit. God treasures himself as dear to himself. And God is gracious to himself. God has favor upon himself. God favors himself. The light of God's own countenance shines upon himself as the highest and as the only good. And God is good, merciful and loving and gracious within himself. But we're interested more this evening in how God is merciful, loving and gracious toward the creature. And especially, how can God show mercy and love and grace toward this sinful creature when, in fact, his justice demands the destruction and the punishment of the sinful creature? And so we look at now how God displays his goodness. In some religions, they talk about how God is good, that God is merciful. But there are no examples of how God shows his goodness. God's people experience God's goodness. Here's Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Here's Psalm 23, verse 6, well known. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. And Psalm 25 verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimony. It is God's desire and God's purpose that his people taste and see and testify to his goodness. And that's why he's given us the book of Psalms. You read through the book of Psalms, you'll see that there is a lot in the book of Psalms about God's goodness and his mercy and his love and his grace toward his people. We are called, therefore, to sing in the church about his love and his mercy and his grace and his goodness. Just a quick historical survey through the Old Testament will show us the demonstration of God's goodness. God demonstrated his goodness just after the fall of man into sin. When Adam and Eve could only expect the sentence of death to fall upon their heads and then to be cast away from God forever because of God's wrath upon them, God came and promised them his goodness. He promised them a savior who would deliver them from their sins. And that savior is the seed of the woman. And that promise came to them in God's goodness. It came to them in God's mercy and in God's love and in God's grace. There was nothing that Adam and Eve did which entitled them to such goodness. Then God demonstrated his goodness to Noah. Genesis 6 verse 8. Noah found grace, favor, in the eyes of the Lord. And God delivered Noah from destruction in the flood. Moving on, God demonstrated his goodness to Abraham. When God made his covenant with Abraham and Abraham's seed. And in that covenant, God said to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant. I will make a friendship. That's the idea of covenant. I will make a friendship between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee. I will be your God, he says to Abraham. I will be to you everything a God is to his people. I will bless you. I will save you. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will provide for you. I will preserve you. I will be your friend. That's the idea of being a God unto him. And to thy seed after thee. And Abraham would then be his son, would be his servant, his friend, and the object of his love. And Abraham would then return grateful love to his great benefactor, Jehovah, the God of his salvation. And God continued to show goodness to Abraham throughout his life. For example, 
in providing a lamb as a substitute for Isaac, just as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on an altar, showing again the goodness of God. And this goodness continued through Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's children. And then God shows his goodness by delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians, bringing them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. And in every generation after this, through Joshua and the judges and Samuel and David and the kings, and even through the Babylonian captivity, and even after the captivity with Ezra and Nehemiah, and all the way to the end of the Old Testament, God showed his goodness. And that despite the fact that they were unworthy of his goodness. And they showed time and time again that they were sinners. Indeed, incorrigible sinners. Always bringing his commandments. And he forgave them time and time again. He led them. He preserved them. He even chastised them. But always in his goodness. And all of this was in preparation for the greatest display of all of God's goodness in Jesus Christ. It's all leading up to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the seed of the woman. And in the fullness of time, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Savior, comes. And Jesus is the greatest display of God's goodness. In Jesus Christ, God's goodness, his mercy, his love, his grace are clearly seen. Ephesians 2 verse 7 speaks about the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It was the goodness of God, the love, grace, and mercy of God, that Jesus Christ was sent into the world. It was through the goodness of God, the love and the mercy and the grace of God, that Jesus Christ came into the world willingly entered into this world of sin and death. It was because God, who is good, saw the misery of his people. He saw their dreadful sin. He saw their awful depravity. He saw the bondage in which they found themselves because of their sin and Satan. That God, in his great goodness, sent his Son, to deliver his people from sin and death. It was because he loved them. He delighted in them. He treasured them as dear to his heart. He willed their eternal good. He willed to be united to them. That's the reason God sent his son. Because God favored them. He gave his son to be their savior. 
And there is no greater display of goodness than this. And so the well-known words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or 1 John 4 verse 10, Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or Romans 5 verse 8, But God commendeth or displays his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that last verse underlines it all. God's people who are sinners do not deserve to receive mercy, do not deserve to be loved, do not deserve to be the objects of God's grace. They deserve the opposite. They deserve God's wrath and curse. They are the ones who are the objects of God's goodness. Unworthy sinners. That's the wonder of God's goodness. And then the goodness and the mercy and the love and the grace of God shine brightest against the dark background of the cross. Where man's wickedness and cruelty were the worst, that's where God's goodness shines at its brightest. Because on the cross, the Son of God dies, suffering under the wrath and curse of God, so that sinners, undeserving sinners, can taste and know and experience and enjoy the blessing and the goodness and the mercy and the love and the grace of God and the sins which would separate us from God's goodness and make us the object of God's wrath, Christ atones for those sins. Christ's death makes his people partakers of his goodness and Christ then rises again from the dead in order that we by the Holy Spirit might receive the gift of the goodness of God. And so outside of Christ, there is no goodness of God. There is no possibility of experiencing the goodness of God outside of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we receive the goodness of God Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.